Good morning, church. Wasn't that spectacular? I mean, isn't that beautiful to see all those churches uh, being planted? And we're so grateful for your participation in it. You are sitting close by one of these faith promise cards. If you have it close by, just grab it, if you will. I'd like to refer to it for just a moment. I want to just remind you that here at Union Chapel, we have two funds that people contribute to. There's the general fund, which basically funds all of our local programs here, our age-level programs within the church, funds our staff and also uh, our ministry campus, the physical buildings. That's the general budget. And then we only have one other fund that that people contribute to, and that's called Faith Promise. Faith Promise is a strategy that we use to encourage people to build their faith and also contribute to local and extra-local missions initiatives. So all of our mission support is funded through Faith Promise. If you'll look at the Faith Promise card on the, on the face of this, you'll see our goals for 2023, next year. And our Faith Promise goal, you can, you can see the line items there that we're designating $300,000 for our church planting initiatives, uh, local and global missions, these are all the local agencies we support, uh, and I'll give you a list of those next week, just FYI, and all the global activity, other missionaries we fund, and that sort of thing. Blood and Fire, of course, is our, fr- our friends downtown serving the local community. Uh, Serve is our week-long outreach to our own city here with hundreds of people participating. And then the BU at UC is Bethel University at Union Chapel. This is this is uh, the college degree program that we're, we host here in our church, and we have uh, eight students this year, second year. That's real good progress, so we're excited about that. So the total you can see is $470,000. Let me, let me simply define for you how you approach faith promises if this is new to you. On the back side of this, if you look down at the bottom, those last two paragraphs, Faith promise is different from a church pledge or contribution to the general church fund, the general budget. It's not a pledge made to the church. It's a promise made to God. So faith is called for, not faith to get, but faith to give. So you're urged to ask God what you should trust him for, the amount he will enable you to give throughout the year. The basis of the promise is a relationship between you and God. So for any reason you can't pay your faith promise, you should explain it to him. You don't have to report to me or anyone else. Make your promise on the basis of what you have to get, not on what you have to give, but on the basis of what you believe God will enable you to give. So this is an invitation for you to exercise your faith, to, to ask God for an amount and then trust him that he will provide that amount to give over and above your regular general offering to this faith promise budget. And I have a whole file full of letters that I've received over the years from people who have done exactly what I just said and the stories that have that have been produced by God's faithfulness in their lives to provide what they needed to fund the faith promise. It's it's a very exciting process. Now you should know this year I have done something that I've never done before. You're looking at a guy who's not only going to pray to God about what I should contribute with my wife Beth to the faith promise ourselves, but I have made promises to other church planters. By the way, did you, did you see those pictures? Do you see these young families who are leading these churches? Do you feel the quality of these people? This is an, it's, a, it's amazing the, 
the, the folks that God is calling to partner with us. And it's, it's, it's so gratifying and so rewarding. So these opportunities continue to grow. Let me tell you what I've done. This, by the way, um, I know some of you are concerned about this whole conversation. I have pastors talking about money again, blah, blah, blah. You'll get over it. Because <laughs> I talk about it all the time. It's my favorite subject. And it's not because anybody needs anything. We're on mission here. And so here's my job. This, this is what you can expect from me if you're new to the church. You can expect me to teach you carefully the will and ways of God, the scriptural principles of stewardship. You can expect that from me. And then you can expect from me to cast vision like I'm doing right now and to articulate what the needs are. And then the third thing you can expect from me is to treat you like an adult. No one's going to hassle you, call you, badger you, write you, follow you up. We treat, I treat you like an adult, like you're full grown, and that you actually want to hear God and obey him. So I teach, then I cast vision, I present the need, and then I treat you like a grown-up. And everybody does their part. And we have never been without We've always had enough. That's how it works. Let me tell you what I did. I have made, you see this total here, $470,000. That's about uh, 60000 more than this year's faith promise goal. <laughs> I, I laugh because I'm nervous. I have, I have exercised faith as we approach 2023 and all of the doors of opportunity that God is giving us in church planting and other areas and I've actually promised money that's about $200,000 more than this. I have no idea where it's coming from. I can't, just based on, the, on history, I can't reasonably expect to raise it here in the church. 470 is reaching. So that's, that's the truth. That's the perspective. So I don't know where another 200000 is coming from. No idea. But by faith, I believe God will provide it. Any, any mission done God's way, in God's time, uh, with, with God's vision, all, never lacks God's provision. And so we hang on to that. I hang on to that. So I'm up to here in faith, faith promise myself. So I, I invite you into the, bo- into the boat. Start bailing. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much for your generosity. You're great, so good. Okay, this is week 31. We made it to the end. We're at the end of the story. How great is this? Congratulations if you have kept up to date all the way through this year. Uh, Good for you, and I'm so proud of you. Let me begin this way. In 1952, a woman named Florence Chadwick stepped into the Pacific Ocean just off the coast of Catalina Island with the intention the determination to swim the several miles all the way back to to the California coast. She'd already been the first woman to swim across the English Channel, so she was an accomplished swimmer. And on this particular day, it was very cold and very foggy. It was so foggy, she could barely see the boat running alongside of her. For 15 hours, she swam. Several times during that swim, she begged those in the boat to take her out of the water, but they wouldn't do it including her mother, who was in the boat saying, come on, Florence, you can do it, you can make it, you got this. Lots of encouragement. But after 
Those 15 hours, her energy finally gave out and she just stopped swimming. They lifted her out of the water and into the boat. And it was only when she was in the boat that she could see how close she was to the shore. She was very close. At the press conference following, she made this statement. I want to put it on the screen for you. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Can you feel that? So here we are at week 31. We come now to the end of the biblical narrative. We actually come to the end of time as we know it. We come to the revelation in a place called heaven. Our goal today is simple. It is singular, and this is the focus. We want to see through the fog and to a place called heaven. If we can do that today, uh, we will leave here with the right perspective. Look on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. This is the message paraphrase. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Isn't that promising? Isn't that good? So here's the prologue to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This is John the apostle, one of the original 12 disciples. He's the last and only surviving member of that original group. All the others have been martyred or have taken their own life and case of Judas. John alone lived out a natural number of years. He's the only one of the 12. John receives this revelation on an island called Patmos. He's been exiled there as punishment for his faith. Patmos is an island that's several miles off the west coast of modern-day Turkey. You can visit Patmos now. It's it's, It's a tourist site. You can actually go to the caves where folks speculate John was living when he received the revelation. So FYI, destination. This is a revelation from Jesus about Jesus. That's what we learn in the first verse. From Jesus about Jesus. And the book of Revelation is amazing. It's filled with all sorts of images and creatures and angels and movements and predictions. And it's very challenging to comprehend and and interpret. John is speaking at some points in Revelation literally. At other points, he's speaking figuratively. And you have to try to sort that. Think about it. He's doing the best he can to describe in first century perspective a worldview and a dramatic and powerful final scenes of world history. It's a tough job. We would have to say to John, wow, dude, you you know, tough work. Hard Hard to figure this out. When John mentions 12 stars, for example, or 10 horns or seven heads or six wings or four bolts, is he speaking literally or figuratively. So we have to work it through carefully. Additionally, there are any number of people who offer their interpretation of the book of Revelation. I mean, you can go online and listen to these guys and gals talk about Revelation, years of study, and they create these charts and and do entire study Bibles around, around end times prophecies and that sort of thing. And I wonder sometimes if some of these prophecy scholars actually know more about the end times than Jesus does. 
So you have the premillennialists, the postmillennialists, the amillennialist view. Uh, there's, there's a rapture theory, you know, that's come into vogue in the last 180 years in theological circles in the world. There are pre-tribulation rapturists, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, etc. It all can make your head spin. Here's the best statement I've seen on how to interpret the book of Revelation. It comes from a wise person, and this was the statement. Look on the screen with me. Regardless of what view you have of the end times, you want to make certain that when the apocalyptic dust settles, you are standing with Jesus. That's where an amen goes, and a big relief when you say, yeah, that's amen, because otherwise I'm not sure I can figure this out. So the revelation is from Jesus, and it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Well, I thought it was about something. No, it's about Jesus. And it can be divided into five different sections that define who Jesus is. Let me go through those with you. Revelation chapters 1 through 3, here we find Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. John is using the Greek alphabet here. And, of course, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so he uses the alphabet to describe Jesus as the first of all history. He's the last of history. He's the creator God. He controls human history. And one day he will come again to rule and reign over all things. And that's where an amen goes in the sermon. I'll preach and say the amens too if I have to. Then Revelation chapters 4 and 5, he is described as the Lamb of God. A holy and just God had to make provision for sin in the world, which required the blood of animals to be offered on behalf of the sins of the people. And that went on for centuries and centuries until God offered his very own son as the satisfaction for all of our sins. We read in Revelations chapter 4 and 5 that the report that the only one found worthy to open the scroll revealing the identity of those who would be eternally redeemed was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he is the Lamb of God. Then in Revelation chapters 6 through 18, now this is where it gets wild. I mean, you have to, you have to cinch it down. Uh, fasten your seatbelt. Here, Jesus is depicted as the righteous judge. Judgment comes to the earth. There are the bull judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments. There are four riders or four horsemen of the apocalypse. There is war and famine and plagues across the whole world. The temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, and a person rising to global power called the beast or the Antichrist comes into power, and he establishes the mark of the beast, which is 666, very foreboding, very dramatic, very dark, very demonic. You read of two witnesses in this section, who opposes the beast, who preach the word of God and do great miracles. So even in the midst of this dark, dark judgment of God on the earth, God still has a faithful witness. And you can be sure of this, that no matter your check of history, you'll discover that God has always had a faithful remnant. And the days in which we are living are questionable and suspicious. And you wonder, What is going on and how bad is it going to get? Is it going to get worse from this? In spite of all the circumstances in our world today, you can be assured of one thing for, for certain, and that is God will always have a faithful people and a faithful witness for the world. And we can be part of that. And that's my intention. I hope it's your intention as well. So we see this Antichrist assassinating world leaders and working towards a one world government, which is not 
beyond our imagination in today's world. And finally, we read about great numbers of people gathering for a battle called Armageddon. Some of you, perhaps within the sound of my voice, have actually visited the Valley of Megiddo, this place where literally hundreds of millions of people will assemble for a great war at the end of time. The Bible declares that, that blood will run as high as the horse's reins, a river of blood. It'll be utter devastation. So in Revelation 6 through 18, those chapters, he is the righteous judge. And then we come to Revelation chapters 19 and 20, where Jesus is described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus actually will intervene in the battle of Armageddon, and he will win the battle of Armageddon. The Bible says unless he does so, all the, everyone in the world would perish. And so he intervenes and he wins the battle and he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And it's very dramatic and it's very powerful. Then to the last two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus is depicted as the bridegroom. He's been described in the, in the Revelation as the, as the Alpha and Omega, the Lamb of God, the righteous judge, the king of kings and lord of lords. And now I believe he will take the position which is his favorite position. Just my speculation. He is the bridegroom. What does that mean? It means that Jesus will take his bride, that is the church, you and me, to a place called heaven where we will be with him forever. Now let me tell you about heaven today. There's three descriptions of heaven in Revelation chapter 21. This is on your outline. Here's the first description. You will live in a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verses one and two. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So we ask the question, why is there a new heaven? Why is there a new earth? Why is there no sea? Well, we're left to speculate. Sea in the Old Testament always refers to storms and darkness and chaos. Perhaps John is saying there's no chaos, no storms, no darkness. Notice the holy city coming down from heaven and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So this earth upon which we live right now will not endure, but a new earth will be established and you will live in a new heaven and a new earth. Here's the second thing we learn as a description of heaven, is you will live with God forever. This is the 20th time John refers to a voice speaking to him from heaven. 20 times he says, and a voice came to me from heaven saying, and then he reports what he hears. And this is the announcement that all of creation has been longing and waiting and hoping for. This is the last, the 20th and the last time that John reports hearing this voice from heaven. Look on the screen at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, earlier you remember in the story that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. This was a special place in the tent of meeting, this, this, this uh, tabernacle in the wilderness of Moses and there was a holy place and a most holy place. This is where God would dwell. We also knew that God would dwell in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. And so we, we identify this terminology. 
But now we learn that God will make his dwelling among the people so that we will always be with him. Let me ask you a question. That's a, it's like, the, all, you realize we just went through the whole book of Revelation right there. That's like drinking through a fire hose, isn't it? I mean, really. So let's pause and ask a question. Are you excited about the place called heaven? Are you excited about it? I suspect that depending on where you live in the world today, your response to that question would be different. For example, I would imagine if you live in sub-Sahara Africa, where life is really, really hard, and you were asked the question, do you look forward to heaven, there would be some enthusiasm. Or if you were a Christian living in Iran right now, knowing if, if just the wrong person finds out that you're a follower of Jesus will probably cost you your life. And you said to them, are you excited about heaven? They say, very excited about heaven. If you were part of the underground church in China right now, and someone asked you, are you excited about heaven? I imagine you'd get an enthusiastic response. By the way, the church in China is the fastest growing part of the world where the church grows. You don't hear that on, you know, cable news. Those of us living in the affluence and blessing of the United States of America are subject to the temptation that this life here is pretty good. So heaven can wait and put that off. You know, Lord, uh, we planned this tr trip to Hawaii. We've been planning it for years. I mean, we got all the kids ready to go. The schedule's lined up. It took us years to save all the money for this. And so if you don't mind, if you could wait until after we take the family trip to Hawaii, then you can take us to heaven. Or the couple who've made big plans to get married and they're so looking forward to the wedding and so forth. You might, you might hear the bride say, Lord, please wait until after the wedding and then you can take us to heaven. The groom, on the other hand, would say, Lord, please wait till after the honeymoon to take us to heaven. So there's more response to that joke than there was, are you excited about heaven? I, I think I've made my point. We get confused thinking heaven is less than the earth. John, the revelator here, is reaching for words to try to describe what he's seen in heaven. So he says things like jasper, gold, precious stones, beautiful places, vistas, lights, colors, the absence of trouble or pain or sorrow or tears or death. See, the, the supreme delight of heaven is none of those things. The supreme delight of heaven is that we will see God himself. We can't get our minds around that. We can't possibly understand what is coming. Paul said it this way, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men what God has in store for those who love him. See, the new heaven and the new earth will be a unification, if you will, of the earthly world and the heavenly world. The new earth, listen, it's not new in kind, but new in quality. So, so a new earth will be like this old earth that we've been living on, and some of us can acknowledge that this earth is an amazing place. It's a, it's a phenomenal place. There are places where there are beautiful vistas, where there are, there are scenes, mountain scenes, and, and prairie scenes, and, and just here in Indiana, you, just recently we've seen the golden fields ready for harvest. I mean, it's a spectacular 
and, and the sunsets and all, all of the meaningful moments that the natural world provides for us. It's a beautiful place to live. And so the new earth isn't going to be completely different than the earth that we're in right now. It's just going to be better, exponentially better. So there will be similarities and continuity between the beauty, beautiful things we experience here and now with the world to come. So there's a new heaven and a new earth that you will live in. You will be with this God forever in a wonderful place. And here's the third thing we learned from Revelation 21. You will never suffer again. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now think about that. Now, you know, sometimes when we're describing a place to someone who's never been there, we've been there, they haven't been there. And it's, it's so special to you and so amazing to you that it's just hard for you to communicate to someone who hasn't seen it, hasn't experienced it. And so what you revert to is you describe the place unlike the one you're trying to describe. Did you follow that? So you, let me explain, uh, illustrate this way. In America, for example, you don't have to walk miles and miles to get a drink of water. I mean, that's one way you could describe America if you're talking to some guy living in North Africa. Or you don't have to eat rice every day. In America, you don't have to eat rice every day. That might communicate to someone who has to eat rice every day. Or you don't have to go without an education. In America, you don't have to go without an education. You, everyone can get an education. And that would communicate to someone who has no access to an education. So John resorts to this tactic by saying, hey, look, this place, I, I really can't explain it to you, but there's no mourning there, no crying, no pain, no death. Imagine this with me, a place where no one gets hurt, no wars, no wounds, no brokenness, no tragic ends, no ambulances, no hospitals, no oncology units, no children with leukemia or brain tumors, no babies starving with bloated bellies and flies attached to their face, no more pills to take, no more thievery, no more stealing. How many of you locked your house when you left this morning? How many of you locked the doors of your car in the church lot this morning before you came in? No faith at all. No shame. Think about that. You will never feel shame again for something you've done. No depression, no fear, no guilt, no worry, no death. Let me just uh, challenge you with, a, with an idea this morning. I hope I can really bring this home. You should turn loose of the notion that death is part of the circle of life. You know, that's how, what we say, isn't it? Everything living is born and eventually dies. That's how we interpret it. It's the circle of life. It's normal. It's natural. No. No, it's not. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. God did not give you life with death in mind. God did not give us any good or perfect thing like a marriage or a career or a child so it could be aborted and experience death. God's not into death. God's not about death. Death is the enemy of God. That's why Jesus came to overcome death, to defeat death, to destroy death. And indeed, death has been done to death. There are no more painful regrets, no tearful goodbyes, no final partings, no more cold, tear-filled nights alone wondering if you'll survive until morning. No more grief, no more tears, no more standing at the casket, no more memorials, no more burials, no more cremations. 
For the old things have passed away. Behold, Jesus said, I make all things new. Praise God. So the apostle Paul writes, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been covering the story. And let, let us just a, recognize as we come to the end that we actually end where we started. Here's what I mean. If you'll look at Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If you'll recall, we started in the Garden of Eden, and now we end in a place called heaven. The Garden of Eden, where God first revealed his primary vision for the world to be an intimate, loving communion with people forever. He established the first man and woman in this garden, this paradise, with no intention of death ever affecting them, to live forever in this beautiful place in communion with God. But Adam and Eve rejected God's vision. Sin entered the world, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And so that first epic was concluded in the biblical story. And now we have the story of Israel. God raised up a man named Abraham and all the ups and downs of the story of the nation of Israel. And then the life of Jesus the story of the church, that's you and me in the world, and then back to heaven. This fifth movement from paradise to heaven. We've come full circle. But you'll recall that in the first movement in the Garden of Eden, there was a river flowing right through the garden. And we also find a river flowing right through heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? It symbolizes eternal life. In Eden, though, there was no throne mentioned. But in heaven, the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We also see the tree of life. It's present in the Garden of Eden, symbolic of the abundant life and eternal life. And in the heavenly vision, we see the fruit of God. Maybe not just a tree of life, but a whole orchard of trees bearing fruit that issue forth in life, abundant life and eternal life. The leaves on the trees for the healing of the nations. It's a magnificent picture of life, symbolic of what God has done for us. And so now we come to this last thought, Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. No longer any curse. Have you thought about the curse recently, or have you just got adjusted to it? We all live under a curse, you know. The curse came when Adam and Eve rejected God's vision for the world and God had to judge it. The curse is the reason why we have to work and struggle and strive in life to make our way. The curse is why women suffer giving birth and everyone else suffers in this world. There's one thing that human beings know how to do and that's suffer. We suffer all the time, all the way through. And the curse is ultimately why we die. And that curse will be lifted. That curse will be done away with. That curse will be replaced with God's blessing and we'll no longer live under this dark, foreboding shadow 
of the weight of our own sin, but God will liberate us from all of it and we'll be free once and for all. The last phrase of verse three says, and his servants will serve him. We will be doing more than singing, more than a big worship service. It's not 24-7 worship. That would not be heaven for me. (laughs) We will also be serving, and his servants will serve him. There will be meaningful tasks to accomplish. We will all be on assignment serving the one whom we love, the Lord Jesus. Serving without the curse will be wonderful. Serving without the curse will be so fulfilling, so satisfying, so honorable. We will constantly learn about God and his wonders and his ways and his creation, and we will reign forever. That's what the Bible promises. Look at verses 4 and 5. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Note the intimacy here. Note the communion. Note the closeness. No night, no darkness, no sin forever and ever. And so we have come to the end, and we see things in common. We see this tree of life, this river of life in Eden, and we also see a tree of life and this river of life in heaven itself. You could almost say that the entire Bible is bookended by these two trees, the tree of life. But we all know the story, don't we? There's one more tree prominent in the story, the story of God. That is the tree, of course, upon which Jesus Christ gave his life. It's the cross of Calvary, that tree. And it's on that tree, friends, that God now stands ready, having prepared everything necessary to offer to us, all of us, an invitation. These are the last words of the book of Revelation. Look on the screen at verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. This is the epilogue of the book of Revelation. It's an invitation. The spirit and the bride. That's the Holy Spirit and that's you and me, all of us who know Jesus, part of the church, the bride of Christ. We offer an invitation. We say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, glory to God, let him come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is how it ends. With this wonderful, loving, compassionate, accepting invitation to join the family of God and receive the gift of life, eternal life that God has made preparation for in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You can take of the tree of life forever in his presence forevermore in a place indescribable by anyone who's ever tried. And so the invitation is extended to you. This may be your day. If you're watching online today, this may be your day to say yes to Jesus and the gift of life he offers you. 
He said, do you believe all this stuff you've just been saying? I believe it all. You believe that stuff's really going to happen? Yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? With all of my heart. Oh, yeah, he's coming. I just bought a hat the other day. It says, normal is not coming back, but Jesus is. <laughs> it's a good message. Encourages me. He is, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Say yes to him. It'll change you forever. If you've come today to receive the sacrament of baptism, I want to encourage you to get up right now and head over to this corner where the baptistry is located. If you're a friend or family member, someone close to these candidates, feel, please feel free to come as close as you want. Get as close, bring your camera if you want to, get in any position you want. This is a public event and it's so important to you and your loved ones. We want you to be as close to it as possible. It is so meaningful. After today's uh, services, we will be right at 180 baptisms that we've conducted this year. Isn't that fantastic? Amazing. And while these folks receive the sacrament today, I'll invite you to stand. God bless you as you do so.